Okay, brothers and sisters, welcome to our Sheepgate Fellowship Sunday service for February 7th, 2021. I hope you are well. Uh, today we continue our sermon series on the book of Judges. So, if you have a Bible open, or if you need to open your Bible, grab it now. And we're turning to Judges, chapter 2. We're continuing to read uh, to the end of this chapter, from verse 11 to 23. Now, last week we looked at 6 to 10, right? Verses 6 to 10, where Joshua died, and we observed, of course... Just a slight flashback to that era, an older generation that feared God, that knew God, right? And they knew God's uh, works. And then a newer generation comes uh, for which they did not know God, right? And they only knew about God and they did not know his works. And we examined uh, the teaching of, uh, of that lesson. Today we continue to read in Judges 2. And we're going to be reading from verses 11 to 23, which is the end of chapter 2, okay? So if you have a Bible open, follow along with me. And this is what the Word of God reads. <clears throat> then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other, other gods among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of the plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. As the Lord had spoken, and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandment of the Lord, commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who pressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord, to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Amen. The Word of God. It's a tough text to read sometimes, and uh, it's difficult uh, as modern readers to sometimes comprehend some of the things we read in the Old Testament. But I read this, and I don't think it should come as any surprise to any uh, keen, thorough Bible reader, uh, uh, especially uh, us New Testament believers, right? Today's sermon is entitled, They Forsook the Lord. It just comes straight from the text. Uh, and again, the they there is a variable. It can be they as in them, it can be they as in us, right? All right, lots to pray for today. Our unreached people group of the day comes from India. They are called the Dusat. There are about five and a half million of these people, of these people scattered across uh, the eastern and northern parts of India. 
primarily located in the northeastern provinces of India. So we're going to pray for the Dusat of India. They're mainly Hindus, and so none are Christian, none are evangelical. So we like to pray for their salvation this day. We have also lots to pray for in the world, uh, but specifically... Uh, one thought that comes to mind is this, is as much as we are, you know, locked at home, uh, away from community, away from a lot of the social interactions we are familiar with, um, you know, it just kind of dawned on me a, a year ago and it dawned, re-dawned on me to this past week is just, you know, for us, it's temporary. We know there's an end to this, right? There's an end to the lockdown. There's an end coming. Um, you know, vaccines will roll out. Uh, people will be allowed to in some sense be you know back into their normal lives right but there are areas of the world where this is just reality for the rest of their life right where there's lack of freedom there's no access to scripture access to christian community you know in a in a way we are getting a glimpse of what it's like to be a believer in the underground church of north korea in a way we're getting of course not to that degree not to that degree of the persecution they don't want to like light life-threatening things other than covid uh, you know, the government attacking us or anything like that. You know, there, in a way, we are experiencing uh, what it means to be a Christian um, without the things we're used to having, right? And so perhaps this is an opportunity for us to develop our personal worship with God, our personal time with God, our daily devotions to God. It's time to build good habits. It's time to, you know, instead of relying on others all the time, although that's a good thing to be in brotherhood and sisterhood, but it's also important for us to have this closeness with God on our own as well, right? And so perhaps this is a really great time uh, for us to develop those things and then pass them down onto our children. It's a good time to start family worship, if anything, right? So let's pray together for families and individuals all across the world in different areas of, of the world where they're under lockdown and believers are perhaps being challenged in this hour uh, to turn to the Lord uh, in desperation, in prayer, in repentance, and personally to their God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much. We thank you for the opportunity that is at hand for us um, as believers around the world to kneel and pray, to come to you, Lord Father, in our unholiness. That, Lord Father, during this lockdown, that we don't look like the world, that we're not doing anything different from the rest of the people around us. That perhaps the world could look to the church and say, why are they enjoying the lockdown so much? What is it in them that they find joy and hope that nothing seems to discourage them? What is it that is the source of this immense joy that I see in this community? Perhaps, Lord, we could turn some heads in this time. Father, we also pray for the Dusat of India. We pray, O oh Lord, for their salvation. And we pray, God, that those you know... Um, in that community that you have chosen and elected, Lord Father, we ask um, that churches and different mediums and missionaries and, and individuals would go to this area and preach the gospel. We're, we're seeing so many different people groups in India that need to hear the gospel. And these people are no different. Father, would you have mercy and grace upon them and uh, bring to them, Lord Father, the good news of Jesus Christ. We also pray, O oh Lord, for the word to speak to us this day, that it would move, transform, the Lord, it would refresh and renew our minds and remind us of truths that are so important for us to hold on to, convict our hearts to stay. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. Um, you know what? Lots has happened this week. Uh, I don't know if you've been 
kind of following along with things. Uh, but it's important that we continue to pray. Uh, if I could ask you, like, as a short prayer request before we can uh, move on with the sermon, is keep praying for, um, like, Jessie. She's in the ICU, right? She's in the hospital. So if you have a chance, reach out to her and just let her know, you know, thanks a lot. You know, I mean, we hear, like, all these, like, you know, media people and, and people on, on the Internet and just thanking people uh, for their, you know, frontline workers and stuff. But we have one at church. And why don't you thank her? She's literally working in the ICU, right? So we can uh, always extend uh, a thank you and gratitude to her. Uh, for that um, and also of course uh, business owners in our church our, our adult congregation as well as others as well as your parents right uh, it's it's definitely difficult on them it's uh, not easy so let's pray for them uh, sometimes financial strain has an effect on our spiritual life as well right and so um, yeah let's just pray for different communities uh, different people who are going through different circumstances please keep that in your prayers as I mentioned earlier, our sermon is entitled, They Forsook the Lord. Forsook is, of course, the past tense of forsaken, right? Forgot, relinquished, right? Detached. There's a tendency for the modern reader of Scripture of the Bible today to read of things like the things we read today, or read today, things in the Bible in the Old Testament like slavery, war, and I guess we're sensitive to things like patriarchy these days in Scripture, in the Bible, and they deduce that the Bible is outdated. It's too distant from our modern, progressive understanding of ethics and morality. It's expired on the issues of morality. There exists, even within the Christian reader today, an uneasiness with the narratives of the war texts in Scripture because they seem so cruel and unlike the Gentile present, or sorry, the gentle present. <laughs> Gentile, gentle presentation of Jesus in the New Testament. This is simply a dire misreading of the Old Testament. Absolute misreading of the Old Testament. For what sets up the significance, value, and meaning of the cross more than the Old Testament, right? Christ himself said he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophecies, the Old Testament, right? For what, uh, for the Old Testament is the roots of all of these things, right? It's revelation of and on human sin, God's holiness, and the utter hatred God has for anything and everything that is evil. And who is committing these heinous acts of evil? Why, it's us. And many times, it's God's own chosen people, right? It's not even the other nations. I mean, they are doing evil things too. But there's a focus, a microscopic focus on God's people in the Old Testament, and there's no, there's no like, oh, they're God's people, so they're holy. No, there are times where they're doing well, but there are many times where, in fact, most of the time, when they're not, right? And so there's a focus on Israel's sins. Today we read of this ongoing trend of Israel's fall from faithfulness that we've been reading in the book of Judges. An ever-increasing turning away from God and turning towards sinful desire. The first and second of the Ten Commandments clearly state that the Lord Yahweh is the one and only God, and the second law states or commandment states that God's people are not to have any other gods before Yahweh, for he is a jealous God, right? Today we read of how Israel began to worship and bow down to other gods. We saw things of, like we saw uh, glimpses of this and precursors of this or foreshadows of this in, in the first chapter of Judges. This part of Judges 2 is sort of a summary of what we're going to read in the entirety of the book of Judges regarding each of the judges that come, they rise, they, you know, they tell Israel, don't do that, and they kind of repent, 
but then they turn away again as soon as the judge dies. We're just kind of getting a summary before the details of the entire story in today's text, right? So they're just kind of laying out the ground for us. So we read of, it, of, of how Israel begins to worship, bow down to other gods, namely Baal. Sometimes we read this and simply see in Israel the same habitual sinful acts that we commit, that you and I commit, that we can we have this tendency to sympathize with them. Right? We read it and we go, yeah, I would do that too, like subconsciously. And we don't, we sympathize with Israel instead of sympathizing with God's heart, which is so weird, right? That's like reading the parable of the prodigal son and going, oh, I feel so bad for the prodigal son. <laughs> and completely missing, completely missing the father's heart in that story. Right? That's, that's ridiculous. We read, they served Baal. And we fail to comprehend what this entails or entailed or even looked like. We just read, oh, they, you know, bowed at the altar of Baal. Oh, we just, I don't know about you, but I just imagine some kind of like statue and they're just like bowing down to it, right? And we don't think in our minds, oh, that, that doesn't seem so bad, right? That is, like we don't say it out loud, but it's like almost we don't comprehend the intensity of that sin, the, the depravity of that sin and how terrible it is before God. That they served Baal. So let me help you understand to some degree before we get into the, the just simple three points today. But before we get there, I just want to help you understand what serving Baal, as the text reads, looked like in a Canaanite context. So we understand what God, why this was so grotesque before God. You may or may not be familiar with the modern cult movement. Uh, fairly modern. Uh, it's known as the Children of God cult or their new name, the Family International. <laughs> Children of God to Family International. It's made, it was made famous, of course, and made known famous, in, uh, even in the secular world, by Joaquin Phoenix's family uh, and, his in, and their involvement in this cult movement, as well as, if you know, the actress Rose McGowan. Uh, she was also involved with this and grew up in this, who both, in their adult life, fled this cult because uh, they were raised within it, and obviously there's really concerning things with this cult movement, and I'm about to detail some of these things. Some of these things are pretty disgusting, so just bear with me. Now, it sounds innocent enough, right? By title, Children of God, Family International. But this cult's fundamental beliefs center around a distorted theology, a distorted understanding of, in fact, the Holy Bible and its teachings. For example, they take the idea that the church is the bride of Christ. They take that terminology and they, they consider this as a responsibility of every follower within their cult uh, to engage in sexual intercourse with Jesus. That's what they take it as. Bride of Christ means sexual intercourse with Jesus. By imagining themselves having intercourse with Jesus while, for example, masturbating or imagining their sexual partner as Jesus while having sex with someone, men are encouraged to imagine themselves as women so that so they can avoid homosexual relationships with Jesus in these imagined sequences. Right? This is disgusting stuff. This is not limited to adults. This is where it gets grotesque. As teenagers, children are encouraged to do the same. Sex with multiple partners and numerous partners uh, within family members is encouraged. As sex is the primary physical act of worship by which they honor and glorify their so-called idea of God. This cult, you can imagine, has been accused of holding you know, pedophilic teachings, distribution of child pornography, engaging in extreme child abuse. And would you ever look at this group, its teachings, its ideals, and have sympathy for their practices? 
No, I don't. I think all of these leaders should not only be jailed, but I mean, I would be okay with far worse. I have no sympathy over people who practice these things or, you know, engage in these kind of lewd acts, right? It's just disgusting. And let me tell you about the Canaanite worship of Baal and Ashtoreth. And let me tell you this, in many ways, not only was it equivalent, it was worse. Ralph Davis, uh, who is a commentator on the book of Judges, gives us a really simple but thorough glimpse into the Baal worship of, uh, of the Canaanites that God detested and the Israelites coveted. And they coveted because nothing has changed since then and now. We still covet sex. And so here's, here's the summary of it. I'm just quoting here. Ralph Davis on Baal worship. Baal was the god of storm and fertility. And for the Canaanites, of course, fertility was the name of the game. Fertility of crops and livestock and family. Prosperity gospel. Baal, nature god that he was, naturally had his female consort. Ashtaroth was his wife. Or Ashtart in, other, uh, in another language. In Canaanite theology, the fertility of the land depended upon, get this, the sexual relationship between Baal and Ashtaroth. The revival of nature, so the coming of rain and the growth of crops, was due to sexual intercourse between Baal and Ashtaroth. But the Canaanite faithful didn't simply sit back and say, let's just wait until Baal does it. <laughs> there was no let go and let Baal thinking among them. Instead, their watchword was, serve Baal with gladness, all ye glands. Hence, the Canaanites practiced what, what was called sacred prostitution as a part of their worship of Baal. A Canaanite man, for example, or instance, would go to a Baal temple or shrine and have intercourse with one of the sacred prostitutes serving in that shrine. The man would fulfill Baal's role and the woman Ashtart's. The idea was that the copulating of the worshiper and of the holy whore would encourage the divine couple to do their thing too, and thus the rain and grain and wine and oil would flow again. Through sac sacred prostitution, it was possible to assist, to encourage, and bring on the great, what they would call, orgasm of Baal in the sky. Thus Baal would make all things new. However, nothing would happen unless the fertility powers were properly worshipped. Now imagine that. Imagine being part of that religion. And you're Israel and you're going, wait, hold on. So what you're telling me is your God encourages sex? So I can just go to the temple shrine all the time and that's actually an act of worship? It's no wonder to me that if you look at the ancient Near East and you look at all of the different pagan cultures that were in that area and a lot of the different uh, religious groups that were there, it's no wonder that one consistent element of all of these uh, so-called religions is that they really valued sexual relations and they valued fertility. And what has changed, brothers and sisters, in 2021? Fertility and sex, what's changed? Sure, we don't pray for oil and wine and grain and rain from the sky. But it's ultimately money and sex, isn't it? 
Other commentators and historians note the more extreme practices of Canaan worship, including because, you know, they would have sex with these sacred prostitutes and the rain wouldn't come. So they would say, okay, we got to intensify this. We got to really encourage Baal's testosterone levels, right? So what do they do? They engage in things like bestiality, sex with animals. They engage with child sacrifice, sacrificing children. They engage in multiple orgies, right? Sex with multiple partners in, at the same time. Other impurities such as these. And you wonder why the Israelites weren't tempted by this. Here's one God who says, do not. And another God who says, do it. What do you think they're going to fall into? Baal, the name itself, means husband. So in the sense, or in a sense, the Israelites were perverting themselves with another husband. Who alone should be, of course, Yahweh. But is it a wonder to you that the Israelites found the pagan culture of the Canaanites so alluring? It shouldn't. For the same, as I mentioned earlier, temptations exist in our secular culture today. Sexual freedom, fertility, prosperity, human empowerment. The forms have changed, but the same sins tempt us today as they tempted God's people all throughout history. Right? What we will focus on today in the text is the response of God stemming, stemming from His nature or His attributes. God, of course, is one that we have always said who is consistent in nature and character. There are three responses, so, so to speak, I see uh, in, in the text today that reveal God's nature, God's attributes that helps us to understand on a larger scale as New Testament Christians, the gospel that God fulfills and gives through the person of Jesus. So let's look at those three things. Number one, the faithful jealousy of God. Faithful jealousy. Or you can replace faithful with holy. The holy jealousy of God. The faithful anger of God. And then finally, the faithful deliverance of God. So let's look at those three things quickly. The faithful jealousy of God. In Exodus 20 verse 5, it reads, You shall not worship them or serve them, meaning idols, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. So God himself says, I am a jealous God. Now, typically, we have a negative connotation with the word jealous, right? I don't think you typically introduce yourself to someone saying, you know, I'm quite a jealous person, right? I don't think we typically say that. But here is God saying, don't worship those idols. I am a jealous God. So this must be, in some sense, a good attribute. In some cases, right? Jealousy is an attribute of God by His own words. It's one of His communicable attributes, in fact. It's one that we share with Him. There are incommunicable attributes, things that we cannot be like God, like omniscient, for example. But there are things that, you know, as bearing the image of God that we share with God. For example, our emotions, and one of them being jealousy. Sometimes we attach a negative connotation, as I said earlier, to jealousy. But the reality is that jealousy is most appropriate. In fact, should be appropriate, should be a thing within a loving relationship. A loving, especially covenantal relationship. An exclusive loving covenantal relationship. Jealousy must be a factor there. Like, don't get married and say, I will never be jealous. What you should be saying is, if I'm marrying you and you don't commit to this, I will be jealous. That's, that's, what, that's what love is, isn't it? 
Now you gotta be jealous about the right things and, and in the right circumstances regarding the correct things. You can't just be overly sensitive, jealous about every little thing that, you know, and they're not doing anything wrong and you're just being jealous. God is jealous when Israel is doing something wrong, right? He's not just, oh, why, why aren't you guys talking to me? Like, it's not like that, right? It's, there's, there's, an, there's a reason to the jealousy and it's correct and it's appropriate. Jealousy is in fact, in my opinion, and in many commentators' opinions, the correct response when trust is broken. We talked about this a few weeks ago, right? Trust. When trust is broken between loving partners, and in the case, this trust is broken between Israel and God by the breaking of the covenant, right? It properly manifests only from a heart that truly does love one another. So here's what I, here's what I see in the faithful jealousy of God. It reveals His love towards us. Right? Imagine if Israel committed sin and they worship these Baal, you know, temples and shrines and they go to these sacred prostitutes and God's just like, oh well. <laughs> right? Listen to this commentator. If lively love was there in the heart of God, he should be upset. He should be jealous. He should be angry. I love how this commentator puts it. Jealousy is love burst into its proper flame. Imagine your partner or a partner. Maybe, I don't want you to imagine your partner doing this. So imagine a, an imaginary person with a partner, right? And they cheat, right? Let's say their partner cheats on them, sleeps with another person. This is in a marital context. And then, the, and then they come and they get caught. You know, the deed is done and everything's caught. So the partner goes up to them and says, you know, I really, I'm really sorry. I cheated on you, blah, blah, blah. And then that person goes, all right, that's cool. <laughs> what boys will be boys. <laughs> this nonchalant attitude. Like, can you imagine that? What would, like, observing that, what would you say? Well, then that person didn't really love this person, did they? They don't care that they committed this act. This, what is this relationship? What is this, right? God should be jealous, right? Having a loving God, brothers and sisters, means having one that is willing and is jealous for us. And in a sense, that humbles me. I don't want to say in a sense. It humbles me. It absolutely humbles me. God will be jealous for my worship, right? It's not that he needs it. He's not nagging. He's not this whiny child in the sky who's like, give me, give me, give me, right? Like, he's saying, no, like, draw closer to me, away from these things, for these things are destroying you, first and foremost. I am the best thing for you. I love you so, and he, I want to be jealous for you because this is what's good for you, right? That's amazing. And we are acting and thinking so selfishly when we want God's love minus that wrath that stems from his jealousy. We're so selfish. That's no different than being in a marital relationship, being married, and wanting again to just have this, you know, sexual relations with other people while at the same time enjoying the benefits of marriage. That's the same thing. That's why we, we read, right? Uh, all throughout the Old Testament, and then later when we read of, is it Hosea, right, who's told to 
marry this prostitute? And he says, this is an example, Hosea, of knowing what it's like to be married with Israel. With God's people. My own people do this to me. This is what it feels like. Number two, the faithful anger of God, which rises and stems and responds from, uh, from, from the jealousy. And again, when we read this text, Judges 2, 11 to 23, some people focus on the anger and the wrath of God and God just being angry, right? It says, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel as the Lord has spoken his evil, oh, sorry, the hand of the Lord was against them. Like these things, right? We read these things and we think, well, God's so mean. <laughs> like, why is he doing this? Why, why doesn't he have compassion over these people? Why doesn't he care for them? Why, why, doesn't he, why doesn't he comfort them and go, hey, why don't you now worship Baal? Like, this is what we think. But brothers and sisters, once again, these are things that God already told them. He said, if you do these things, my anger will be against you. My hand will be against you. Do not do these things. For I cannot allow them. God's anger is an example, again, just like his jealousy of his faithful love towards us. Exodus 15, 7 reads, And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. Listen, God's anger against the sins of our life and, and against sinners is in fact the most loving thing God could do. It's the most just, loving thing God can do. Verse 12. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. Verse 20, so the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Mentioned twice here in today's text. Here's John, uh, sorry, not John MacArthur. Here's my insight on this. Like jealousy, the correct and appropriate response of a loving God towards unfaithfulness and sin is anger. If we sinned and God simply shrugged, well, that's a bigger problem because that indicates passiveness. Worse, that indicates no love. God's anger against sinners and sin is, in fact, again, like jealousy, evidence of his love for us. Here's MacArthur on this. Calamities designed as chastisement brought discipline intended to lead the people to repentance. Read the text. Look what it says in verse 22. In order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord or walk in it as their fathers did or not. Right? So these things were brought to them, not simply just out of raging anger, and he's just beating these kids up, right, so to speak. Like, he's just spanking them. Our parents don't, don't just get angry when they just, well, I mean, I won't say all parents. We do have some terrible parents out there. But typically, a loving parent will not just grab their child and be like, I hate you, right, and just start spanking, spanking us, right, or disciplining us for no reason. What's the reason our parents typically, as loving parents, why, do their, why does their anger burn against us sometimes? Because they see something wrong in us. And they want to correct it. And, and what's the intention behind there? To help. Now our parents are, you know, fallible, sinful creatures. So they're going to make mistakes sometimes. But having a holy, perfect God, having His anger burn against us, is in fact a loving act of discipline. But we don't experience it that way. Just like when we were a child and our parents are disciplining us, we didn't comprehend in our minds, why is my loving, so-called loving parent, my mom and dad, doing this or saying this to me right now? They don't love me. They hate me. And we start crying and we weep. And we just think our parents are the worst. 
I want to leave this house. I don't want to live here. I don't want to be with these people. These people don't understand me. They don't get me. Blah, 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 right? That's the same thing we do with God. We don't comprehend the wrath. We don't understand it. But here's the thing. Don't skip to the cross before understanding the wrath. You know, sometimes people look at the, the cross and they go, oh, it's a beautiful image of grace and mercy and no wrath. No. Incorrect. The Bible clearly articulates to us that this is the propitiation of Christ. That it's the wrath of God unleashed on Christ. But you know what the Bible also teaches? That the cross is the greatest demonstration of His love for us. The unleashing of His wrath on His own Son. Think about that. So when you read the Old Testament, you see the wrath of God, the anger of God burning against Israel, trying to draw them out of their sins. Read discipline. Read teaching. Because brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but a gentle nudge doesn't take me out of my sins. It doesn't. My sins are so abhorrent and so part of me that God just simply going, hey, why don't you do this instead? Just, just doesn't work. I know me. And as much as I hate it, and as much as I... As much as I hate the experience of it, I need the anger of God to burn against my sin, against my evil. It shouldn't have even come as a surprise that God was angered by his sins, considering that God had told Israel, as I mentioned earlier, that his response to their sin and their abandonment of Christ or of God would be anger. Here's one commentator, David Guzik. He writes, This response of God to the unfaithfulness of Israel was no surprise. He specifically promised that he would do this in the covenant he made with Israel, which was characterized by blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. That's Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. Therefore, he writes, we should see this, this act of anger, as a manifestation of God's love for Israel instead of his hate. The worst judgment God can bring upon a person, listen to this carefully, the worst judgment God can bring upon a person is to leave them alone. Because that's another way of saying these three words. And I mean it, I don't mean to put these words in God's mouth, but I'm just going to say it. Go to hell. That's what it means for God to leave us alone. If you don't believe me, ask Lucifer. To stop trying to bring someone to repentance. I would not wish that upon anyone. The mid-1990s told the story of a woman named Shannon Wilsey. Who was a well-known actress in the pornographic industry. As a 23-year-old woman, she made a lot of movies. Pornographic movies. And a lot of money. Yet... She put a gun to her head and killed herself. Though a success by some standards, the detective investigating her death said, I think her whole life caused this suicide. Shannon bragged about doing crazy things, yet she told a close friend that she wished her mother would have stopped her. The friend said she felt bad because her mother didn't say anything about her being in the pornography business. After her suicide, an unmailed letter was found where she described what she wished her dad would have done. 
She writes, Where were you when I was dating rock star Greg Allman when he was 25 years older than me? Where were you when I was on heroin? Where were you when I started doing porno movies? They interviewed the dad and the dad said he would have been there for her had she only asked. You don't want God leaving you alone. What a blessing it is that we need not ask and God will unleash his wrath and anger against our sins. For us. Because we're not smart enough or wise enough to do it ourselves. Against the very things that we love and dear so much, but are actually destroying us from within. Be thankful this day, brothers and sisters, that we have a God that loves us so that he would unleash wrath upon sin, our sin, us. But also, as we will now see, then delivers us from that sin. By grace, through his son, Jesus Christ, for he is also God the deliverer. Which brings us to the final point, God the faithful deliverer, the faithful deliverance of God. We read, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. So it's not the judge itself that had power to save these people. It's the Lord being with this judge, as he was with Moses, as he was with Joshua. And saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. So God would unleash anger and he would say, evil, you know, I will allow these nations to overtake you. And then they would groan and they would moan and they would cry out. And then God would have compassion and he would say, all right, fine, here's a judge. <laughs> and the judge comes and the judge is like, okay, Israel, here's what we do. This is the game plan. And for a moment, because they're in like absolute distress, they'd be like, okay, we'll listen to you. But as soon as that judge dies, it's like, sayonara, God, again, back to the old ways. For the Lord was moved to pity, it reads, by their groaning. Reminds me of the Exodus. Because of those who tormented and oppressed them. But it came about when, he, when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers. In following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their obstinate ways. That's verses 16 to 18. And verses 16 to 18, at the heart of this text is really the grace and mercy of God within this. So in a sense, what we're reading today, 11 to 23, doesn't it encompass so many things that are related to the gospel that you and I believe, right? Meyer writes this, The days of the judges were those in which there was no king over Israel. The faithfulness of our experience is often attributable to our failure to recognize the kingship of Jesus. I've said this a few times. We treat Jesus like prime minister. We treat Jesus like president. We don't treat him as king. You know what king is? King reigns. Sometimes we just look at Jesus as like the, the head on, the, on our coin or on our bills. Or the name that's just like, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's on the buildings. But what does that do with me? Yeah, sure, he passes you know, legislation and policy, but... What does that have to do with me? Like, I'll just live my own life. I'll live distant from that, right? But if you go to a country where there's a king, or in the negative sense, like the anti-sense, a dictator, this is why I think sometimes when North Koreans convert to Christianity, they get it. It's 
So Jesus, you're king. Oh, I get it. <laughs> right? Whereas for us, we're like, we never had a king, so we don't get it. We don't understand the ruling power of a king. Hosea 11, 7 to 9. Read so powerfully. Listen carefully. My people are bent on turning away from me. This is God speaking. And though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. So as much as his anger and wrath teaches us and reveals the, the depravity and the evil sins of our life, there is still compassion in God. He will not leave iniquity unpunished, we read in Exodus. But he is slow to anger, abounding in grace and mercy. Reminds me of my own parents. Man, they would punish me for stupid things I would do. And as I'm crying in my room and going, I hate my parents, they would come in. And they embrace you. And what do they say? This is why I did this for you. And that's an earthly, sinful parent. Our God is ever more than that. So the wrath reveals how much we are to detest the evils of our life. How much we are to treat and understand God as holy. And then comes the compassion and the grace and the mercy to deliver us from that evil. Right? Dane Ortland writes in his book, Gentle and Lowly, The sins of those who belong to God open the floodgates of His heart of compassion for us. The dam breaks. It is not our loveliness that wins His love. For we are not very lovely. <laughs> it is our un loveliness our hearts gasp to catch up with his it is not how the world around us works it is not how our own hearts work but we bow in humble submission letting god set the terms by which he will love us Once you see God's heart in Judges 2, verses 16 to 18, when you see this, brothers and sisters, properly, I urge you to fast forward to the New Testament and turn to Hebrews 4, 15, where you will meet the manifestation of this delivering compassion of God. He is the high priest in Hebrews 4, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So when you see God's heart here, you will see the priest there. In conclusion, I quote, It is strange that anyone would want to trade a personal, real, living God for a false God that is the figment of man's imagination. Yet, 
There is something within every man that is afraid of the exact God we need. We would rather serve a God of our own creation than the real living God whom we cannot control. The gods we create are the gods wanted by our sinful desires. Brothers and sisters, I doubt anyone walked into a Baal shrine looking to have sex with a you know, sacred prostitute, so to speak, and was going, today I'm going to urge Baal to have sex too. No way. 99% of those freaking horny men that were walking into that shrine, they were just looking for sex. You think Israel was like, wow, that, that seems theologically correct. That seems like a very thorough you know, explanation of how the world works. I'm in. <laughs> like, come on. Come on. God is a jealous God, for he alone deserves our worship and adoration. Hence, his anger burns against us for the sin of idolatry. When we give worship to things that are not God and unworthy of any praise, this is because he loves his people. He loves them so he has our so he has our greatest needs in mind and his and our greatest need is God. So he punishes the wicked for their sins that they may turn and repent, right? And so he acts as deliverer, knowing that we cannot save ourselves. So like he provided Israel with a judge who temporarily was able to kind of bring them out of that sinfulness. He provided us with the greatest of kings, the highest of priests, the wisest of prophets, and the best of the judges, the person of Jesus Christ, his son. He came as a savior and as a deliverer, who in fact is our Lord. So, brothers and sisters, by grace he came, by faith we live, and in Christ may we be found. Let's pray. Let's take some time to think and reflect upon some of the things we've learned today. And hopefully they have taught you something as they did for me.